It is Tuesday, March 24th, 2020, and coming up, the tune-up probably presents the Joe Strummer region of the Now That's What I Call Madness Volume 1. All the heavy hitters in this region. We got Michael. We got Joe Strummer. We got Madonna. Heck, even Kanye West is in here. All that's coming up next. This is the tune-up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snail Campaign Provocateur, Mr. He's Still Holed Up in an Undisclosed Location. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, Denny? How's it going up there in Jersey City? You guys oh, all right? Hey, I you know, I went into Lackawanna Coffee yesterday, right? And you'll never believe this shit, right? This guy, <laughs> I walk in to get my coffee. You know, it's a nice day. We're going for our afternoon stroll, and I don't even get in the door, and... The, the guy in front of me is like, can you stand six feet back, please? I'm like, dude, if you think I'm going to be the one to walk in here and give you the corona, you got another thing coming. <laughs> Danny, it's a tense time, man. You got to give people some wiggle room. They're afraid and crazy and wild right now. We got to put... We got to put love and understanding out into the world instead oh of the goodness. opposite, you know? That's what we got to do. It's the future generations we're molding, Denny, you know? You I know? think this guy was older than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he was. I'm sure. Well, that's probably why. Get away from me, youngster. Yeah, right. He, well, he probably thinks I just got off a, off a flight from spring break in Florida. He's like, I don't want any of your debauchery-related diseases coming I near gotta me. I got to tell you, if a nice-looking young white kid came near me right now, oh, yeah. That's kind would, of you. That's kind of I'd you. Kick, I see. I'd kick him away. I'd kick him away. Give him the boot. Get away from me, kid. That, that's right. We're only doing this over the internet right Daytona now. Fucking Daytona or something. Whatever you're doing down there with your fucking Bud Light board shorts. Oh, my God gosh. Knows. God knows. So how much did you miss the tournament this past weekend? You know, it would have been a big weekend for your Scarlet Knights, probably. First tournament appearance in, in a very long time. I was watching some of the old games they played on CBS this weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously for Rutgers... This would have been the first time in many decades that we were going to make a tournament, which would have been fun. Uh, as far as the whole tournament went, I mean, as big of an NBA fan as I am, I tend to, at this time of the year, really start focusing on the guys who are NBA prospects and people coming out and these guys usually normally being on good teams. But it was sort of shaping up this year for the tournament to be filled with uh, a lot of guys that maybe weren't lottery talent and mm. NBA players, and it was a little a little less appealing to me, honestly. It, it was a good year for it to come off. I was say. excited for the world to get to w- watch a, a full game of Obi Toppin because that could just fun to watch. And my guy Marcus, you know, he probably would have played hero ball for thirty eight minutes during the tournament, but those two minutes would have been spicy. Yeah, that would have been fun. That would have been yeah. fun. Next year we'll drive up to Albany. Yeah, right? exactly. Hey. If it if it's written in the cards and Marquette isn't looking for a new coach next year, we'll definitely be on that. But speaking right. of madness, we have madness right here on the tune up. You came to the right place if you were looking for anything bracket related, because today we have the Joe Strummer region. But before we get to that, let's get into the results from the Marvin Gaye region. So moving on to the next round, we had what's going on. Took care of paranoid pretty easily. Never mind. Dark side of the moon. A tight contest by with Nevermind got 54% of the vote. Dark Side of the Moon, though, close to 46%. Tight one there. Following that up, uh, Nation of Millions, 
by Public Enemy. Took care of Elvis, so bye-bye Elvis. Though this one was our tightest one because Public Enemy got 52% of the vote. Elvis, 48. Ooh. Only a couple votes difference. Exactly. It was probably my my uh, Kevin Durant burner accounts that, uh, that <laughs> made the difference there. No, just kidding. And then, oh, man, this is what I, I, I knew from the jump was about to get destroyed. We almost had a Springsteen-esque railroading yeah. by Fleetwood Mac over Cal King Tapestry. I got to say, I mean, for as classic of an album it is, Carol King is not getting a lot of love out in the world right now, you know? Maybe I mean maybe it's a sign. What do you mean she's not know? getting a lot of love? It, it was Listen, it was a it was a huge hit when it came out, and as we've talked about as we've been going through this the last few episodes has been the way albums age, and maybe Carol King is aging out of the uh the relevancy she once had who knows because but, rumors rumors gave her a spanking right exactly but benny you're you're, you're acting like carol king just didn't have a, a musical on broadway for a decade oh i had no idea actually <laughs> what was it was it good <laughs> one a tony benny oh okay okay <laughs> sorry I, i'm not up on my stage performances right now mm. <laughs> all right well let's move on to this week without any further ado Let's get into the Joe Strummer region. And all right, so here's the matchups we got in this region. Uh, the number one seed in this region, Pet Sounds, as we said before. Pet Sounds will be taking on My Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. Uh, the two seed in this region, named after, I guess, the godfather of this region, London Calling, uh, goes up against Nas and Illmatic. That's, that's going to be a spicy one right there. Yeah, very uh, spicy. Uh, the three seed in here, Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix, going up against the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. I know there's more to the end of that name, but for the sake of this tournament, just rise and fall of Ziggy is, is, is good enough for me. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. And then, you know, this is this is a battle of behemoths in this 4-5 matchup. Don't think we'll quite have a Carol King uh, Fleetwood thing in this 4-5 matchup. Thriller by Michael Jackson going up against Madonna's Like a Virgin. Pet Sounds versus My Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. Now, Pet Sounds uh, was really one of the first high-production budget, kind of, you know, a, a, a psychodrama kind of album, i.e. What, what we'll talk about later with Michael Jackson's Thriller, going up against an album that really changed how we approach marketing in the age of social media and uh, made a modern star. So, Benny, let's start with Pet Sounds here. What do you like about it? Well, I mean, I love this bracket, first off, because it's like the, hey, we, you know, Beach Boys, hey, we're making our 11th album. Kanye, I'm making my fifth album. But we both lost our shit right before this happened, you know? And as we've talked about this, and it's becoming a very concurrent theme in our, uh, in our tournament here, it does seem that people make their finest work when they're dancing on the line of sanity. And, and it's one of those things that, uh, you know, people want their artists and like their rock stars, for lack of a better word these days, to be like pretty safe sometimes, you know, like, like everybody loves a Dave Grohl, you know, because you know what you're getting with Dave Grohl's, he's just a dude, you know what I mean? He could be your garbage man. He, he figured that part out of it. He's absolutely, totally not controversial. He makes everybody like him. And Foo Fighters albums are good. They're fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're the greatest things that will ever wind up on one of these lists. 
And one of the reasons is probably because Dave Grohl just kind of has it under control. You know, <laughs> his band likes him. His crew likes him. His fans like him. He's never like done anything like that. And he's almost so painfully normal that the Foo Fighters are going to wind up being a, a seven or an eight instead of a 10 forever. Maybe, yeah. you know, uh, and, and I would never wish these demons upon <laughs> these artists because it's not my life. But to say that it didn't uh, fuel both of these albums in significant ways, it would be remiss. So, I mean, what can I say about Pet Sounds that hasn't been said? Right. I mean, as you noted in the last podcast, even John Cusack has taken a stab at this. And once <laughs> once the Cuse gets involved, you know it's not a deep cut anymore. But, uh, I mean, the fact that this record came out in 1966 and you can listen to it now with an audio quality it's not like you're listening to the audio quality of this record for nostalgia, which you would often do for 66. You'd be like, Oh, let me hear it on record. Let me hear the graininess. Let me hear the honestness of these performances because of the, you know, the primitive nature of recording. This couldn't be like farther from the opposite of that. And uh, you know, the soundscape, the amount of time and effort and money that went into it. And the fact that, I mean, it can be argued that this record is nearly a Brian Wilson record. You know, he, he wrote most of it. He wrote almost all of it when nobody was around to the point, you know, there's, there's back and forth stories on how much the other members of the beach boys actually accepted it at the time, but certainly they found it jarring and they weren't, uh, they were nervous to go from good vibrations and surfing USA and the things that made the beach boys really popular into this and i dare that it was brian wilson's uh you know semi madness and creativity at the time that led him to just push and push and push to another level uh and obviously bringing in you know large-scale musicianship that hadn't been seen you know you're not talking about a lot of guys bringing in didgeridoos and shit like that at the time so this is uh your unarguable number one scene and the interesting thing I think that both of these records have in common is the fact that they're both two, I guess you could say, like, craftsmen, producers, hands-on artists putting, um, really isolating themselves from society. Kanye on uh, Fantasy, uh, Hold Up in Hawaii, Brian Wilson, Hold Up in California. But there's a couple of fun facts about this album while researching it uh and its its influence that i thought was interesting you know uh the classic song god only knows yes no pop track before on the billboard charts had ever charted with the word god in it ah, get out of here so as as, as society kind of came around on a lot of uh different norms uh, uh they <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it they accepted Brian Wilson, you know, uh, talking about a girl, talking about God. So, and now you probably go into a church and they're probably, you know, it's probably Playing him. God only yeah. knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. One of the other tracks on here, uh, you, actually the title track, Pet Sounds, was supposed yeah. to go on the James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. And yeah. the studio rejected it. And next thing you know, it, it's on Pet Sounds. But uh, the uh, really interesting thing, I think, about this album I'm not sure if it was competitive, but the collaborative effort between Paul McCartney and yes, Brian Wilson sure. here, 
Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and was like, I want to make something like that. And then Paul McCartney hears Pet Sounds and in particular, God Only Knows and Cries. So I think now we would think that they would have a beef, but right now, uh, but back then it was a collaborative effort, even if they never really met for a while after that. Yeah, I mean, the simple fact that Pet Sounds was inspiring the Beatles and Beatles albums, you know, just shows its worth right off. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about Dark Twisted Fantasy as opposed to Pet Sounds is, you know, Kanye kind of was famously collaborative on that album. It's one of the strongest points of Kanye. You know, he, yes, he was holed up in Hawaii, but through the course of that time, he had spent over $3 million, which is, you know, an insane amount of money to budget for an album. And most of that money was spent on importing different producers and artists to Hawaii to help them finish these tracks. And apparently from some of the artists who were part of it and collaborated it, you know, people like Q-Tip who obviously is, is, um, you know, a master himself at creating albums, you know, was quoted as saying that, that, you know, Kanye was bringing beats and samples and sounds to the, to the table and having all these great artists really like put their, put their minds in it. And, uh, you know, Kanye is known as a braggadocious asshole in a lot of ways, but he obviously is open enough about music and respects other artists enough to sit there and really listen and really take advice and really understand that uh, other artists have something great to add to it. So it's hard to say, like, one of Kanye's greatest abilities would be as a collaborator, but it seems as one of the, the more uh, famously beautiful parts of this record is the successful amount of collaboration. And I want to dive into Dark Twisted Fantasy now because I feel like a, a lot of times when we talk about these like cultural icons for the time, there's like the rise and then there's the fall. Well, Kanye's had this middle part here that's been pretty interesting. Obviously, you have uh, the beginning of his career where he's like, we have like college dropout and 808s. But then you get into Dark Twisted Fantasy, and he's he's coming off of the Taylor Swift incident in the 2009 right. VMAs, where he which got all the way up to Barack Obama, the president of the United States, calling him an asshole, and his ability to to I think for Obama just called him an ass, right? Oh an yeah, ass? yeah, yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me scratch Obama that from the. Right. the hole. I don't think he would have said the hole at that time. He had too much to lose. Okay, hold on. Let's. Let's do that all again because I can't no, be. That's funny. I can't be out here misquoting Barack Obama. But uh, <laughs> but uh, here's what I think is the most important thing about this album. Yes, music masterpiece. But 2010, the year Kanye West infamously joins Twitter, and you know this kind of changed the game because he was, you know, just tweeting like everybody else, kind of filling in that. As you mentioned, like Dave Grohl being a normal guy, like he was tweeting, oh. Like uh, like burritos are like the devil or or stuff like that for, from that time, and that continued up you know like eight years of just quality tweets from Kanye. But the interesting thing about what he did musically and you know just kind of keeping his name in the public sphere is uh you know he would like go to like the Twitter and Facebook headquarters and have one like the first live streams that that they would right, do. Right, he right, would drop sure. new music on like these Good Fridays. Uh, you know he. Uh, did a whole bunch of this stuff on the internet and really kind of invented the modern like music drop that you've seen your Drakes, your Beyonces do now, where you just kind of so spring on the, something. On the, on the long form, you see this as the 
what will be known as the first social media album. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And especially, you know, there was that and I'm not sure if anything that came after, you know, the Kardashians, uh the feud with uh Jay-Z after after Thrones. I'm not sure if any of that's possible if this isn't a smash because you know, the public will tell you down, but the moment you give them something to like, especially after that Taylor Swift thing, they're right back in your corner. And that really has allowed him to have the run that we saw, you know, like campaigning for Trump and doing all this crazy stuff where he has his breakdown a year ago. So I think this album was a big catalyst for everything we saw the last decade. Yeah, I mean, there's no chance Kanye could have gotten away with the shit he's gotten away with if he wasn't really good. Yeah. I mean, I've even... I can hear myself saying it because I've said it a hundred <laughs> times where I've been like, yo, that guy, I fucking hate that guy, but he's really good. Yeah. You know, I've said it a lot. Like you can't, you know, he's a piece of shit in a lot of ways and he's very confusing in a lot of ways. Uh, he's a hard man to support, but you can't deny the fact that he's talented. And then, uh, you know, I think just musically, if, if you see where, where hip hop went after this album, you know, you get you, you have your Drakes, you have your, your Migos. It's like a lot more emotional based, a lot more auto tuning. I'm not saying that the music is, is, is more complex, but it, it kind of went the genre evolved. Kanye West evolved. But Brian Wilson versus Kanye West right off the gate here. going to be interesting. Yeah, I have a feeling I know which way this vote's going to go. <laughs> but but I like that Kanye is getting some representation. I don't know. I think that this one may be closer than the experts think. All right. Next matchup here, the two seed London calling by the clash versus Nas Illmatic and Benny. This is, this is an incredible one because you have London calling and we've talked a lot in this contest already about records that kind of meet the moment. Uh, 1979, you have the, uh, the energy crisis, the Iranian hostage crisis. And then in England, you have, uh, the whole Margaret Thatcher thing going on in the world. Kind of in in a bit of upheaval in 1979, and this record comes out at the perfect time for that. Yeah, I mean, London Calling. This, this, by the way, is maybe the hardest one if I had to vote yeah. as an outsider because these are two absolute classics to me in my personal resume of listening to music. Uh, I mean, one thing about London Calling right off is you can never have a more iconic album cover. And things <laughs> like that hold weight, you know? Like, yeah. Like, literally, they thought of it. They put it on there. It's a stunning image that's going to last forever. And anyone for the rest of time puts an image like that in their record, they're stealing from the clash. Mm. It was genius. <laughs> no one can put a picture of them breaking their own instruments on the cover because you're biting from the clash, yeah. which is awesome. Um, you know, the thing about this record, you know, there's a lot you could talk about with the political message, obviously. And there's a lot to talk about with the musicianship because it was first class. I mean, these guys could play their asses off. And that's one of the reasons this record is is lasting. And one of the reasons, you know, something like Nevermind the Bollocks, you know, the Sex Pistols and stuff like that has gone the way of more of like an iconic record and an important record. But I don't hear a lot of people like listening to Nevermind the Bollocks anymore. You know, it's like it's it's not really holding up to me as, as a musical album. It's, it's holding up as sort of a generational piece. And The Clash were very, very much able to transcend that. I think something cool about The Clash that I think people need to appreciate at this time was, you know, this was their third album. 
they were introduced as a punk band, like a punk punk band, you know, representing a very specific scene uh, and a very specific movement that was going on. And I've seen a lot of bands do this, where basically the clash was at the precipice of their own success. And I've seen bands personally be at that precipice. And in order to like hold on to what they think is legitimate or in order to hold on to punk and the very demanding uh, attitudes of people who are inside of those scenes, like they very easily could have just been like, all right, we got to make just like another punk record. We can't piss people off. And instead they crafted like an album that can connect in so many different types of music where at the end of it, you're like, Oh, this is kind of just like a rock and roll record. And it's a good enough rock and roll record that, your normal everyday run of the mill person, you know, who at least is into rock and roll can listen to it and digest it. And it's not too snotty or too of this. And then hidden behind the covers are some really well-written and poignant and vital lyrics of the time. And that's another one of those things. It's like, you have to, you have to get people to hear it to change their minds. Mm. You know what I mean? And that was one of the greatest long-standing, powerful things of this record is they got really big and they changed a lot of people's perspective on the way they were thinking about not specifically the world, but like people like the clash was like the people's band. They were always talking about the people. And uh, I think, that message is still there and people are still feeding off it to this day. All right. The other side of this matchup, we have Illmatic by Nas and Benny. This yeah. is, this is one of my favorite in this entire competition. And here's why I think this is important. You know, when we, when we've talked about the beach boys or when we've talked about Nirvana and you hear records sometimes that are like, put you into a place and this puts you into New York city. Sure and does. It invented the moniker of King of New York and really invented what would later become the East-West Wars in hip-hop. So, Benny, where in in the historical context do you put Illmatic? I mean, I put it extremely high. This is a really important record to me for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, I think it's the quintessential New York hip-hop album of the last, like, 25 or 30 years. You know, like... Like anything that's come after it was so closely uh, influenced by it that that anything that's come after needs a tip of the hat to Nas. Not only Nas, but DJ Premier, who essentially like crafted the New York sound in the 90s. And, you know, when you talk about East Coast versus West Coast, like the idea of just running a beautiful sample and a beautiful beat and letting somebody like spit a story over it. Don't give me a chorus. Don't give me a a shiny little like, you know, key sample. Like that's what made this East coast as opposed to West coast. And, and this is where the avenues really started to split, but the content, you know, again, it's like, it's one of those things. If you can get like a white kid from the middle of New Jersey to 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 listen to this record and connect with it in that way like how are you doing that when the content is so far from anything i knew and i think it's just because this album is so 
poetic, mm-hmm. you know, like, like these are, these are beautifully crafted stories in the way he's telling them. And this is a fucking 20 year old kid telling them like, this was his first album. And well, not his first, I mean, his first real, but album, like the I breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of the reasons like the content feels so legitimate is like a year or so before this, his DJ, who was his collaborator, was killed and his brother was shot on the same night. And this is like an 18-year-old Nas who's already a fairly well-known kid in, the, you know, in New York. He, he was discovered by Large Professor when he was like 16 and starting to get brought up the ranks. And everyone knew he was really talented, himself included. So when this uh, record came to pass, he was sort of like already imagining at 20 years old that he was the most legitimate guy there was and that he was the king of new york like there was no fronting on this like this is totally what he thought and you can hear it um and there's a real like stark reality like he just saw himself a little bigger than what was going on which i think was really important and again uh it's another album with really like iconic and quintessential artwork um, like the picture on the front, you're just like, you know, it's like this connection that like, oh my God, like, like these are like basically kids, mm. you know, like there's kids here and, and there's kids who live here and that's important. You know what I mean? It's not just these guys. And then the back cover, I don't know somebody like from where I was from in the mid to late nineties who like was not riding the dick of that picture we saw in the back of the Nas record. Like everyone had a pair of Tim's. Everyone had a puffy North face thing. Like everybody was trying to rock that style so hard. And again, it was so iconically different than the West coast thing that people still dress like this in New York. Mm. Like that is still New York hip hop style. And it was him and his crew that looked like that. So there's like a bunch of reasons, but to me, the lyricism, the beats of DJ Premier, the iconic nature of it, the timing, and his continued success after just makes this uh, firmly in my top 32. No, uh, So here's what I love about this record is, you know, it's not a Scorsese film. This wasn't Night at the Apollo. This record gave a voice to a section of America that was painfully underrepresented because I think a lot of people especially coming from the early 80s up to the 90s, uh, you kind of saw African-Americans kind of be not erased from the American cultural landscape, but uh, a lot of the black TV shows of the 70s, nowhere to be found along the, the 80s. So I think this really gave a voice to a population that had been ignored. And then not only is is, is that important, but then how it goes on, goes on to build... Uh, what became the predominant culture of the 21st century. So all of this is important. Oh, and we can't have any of this Nas conversation without talking about Jay-Z because Jay-Z flips his entire persona of what his music was on his head after this record comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people did. Yeah. To to, to their credit. But I don't think anybody kind of parlayed it into billionaire status and then i if 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 you want to go on like the stairs theory of culture where stuff builds on each other and you know some people depending on who you are can walk up that you have nas and then jay steps over that and then beyonce i i I know this is terrible to say about a married couple 
Beyonce just steps all over Jay's legacy and his reputation in the mid-2000s to become to what she is today. So a lot of things not possible without this record. I mean, Jay-Z did a lot to, to mess himself up. Too, yeah. That. But, but I think, you know, all that being said, to wrap this one up, is that sometimes albums come out where the second everybody hears it, everything's different. Mm. And I think this was one of them. I don't think there is somebody involved in hip hop when this record didn't come out who just listened to it and went, okay, game is different now. <laughs> yeah. And this is the new bar. Like that's basically what he did. And, and that makes it as, as important as anything. All right, our next matchup here, three sixth. Are you experienced by the Jimi Hendrix experience versus the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust? Rest of the album name with Cluded because that's all you really need to know. I feel yeah. like I need to put that caveat in every time because album title just way too long, way too right, it's fucking gonna be, long. You know, there's gonna be some nerd giving you the parentheses on that one. Oh, who sure. cares? Who cares? Yeah, Bring yeah, it on, yeah. at Denny underscore Gallagher. But let's get into the Jimi Hendrix record here because, you know, we just talked about uh, Illmatic and those records where, you know, once you hear it, it kind of punches you in, in the mouth and nothing's mm-hmm. ever the same. This is very much that same kind of record. The fact that, like, this record was his debut album is just insane to begin with because, you know, there's, like, that classic conception in music is, like, your debut album is usually the best in a lot of ways because it's the songs you've been sitting on for the entire time you'd been writing music and you have all these gems and then all of a sudden somebody actually wants to hear them and you use the best of what you have, you know, and then it goes into the sophomore slump. But the cool thing about this is that, you know, in like May of 1966, like Jimi Hendrix was still like a local bar blues guitar player who just happened to like be seen by Keith Richards girlfriend and, you know, they became friends and they became into him and he moved to Greenwich Village and eventually met like the guy from the animals who moved them to London. You know, just this really like bizarre mid 60s kind of thing that happened to Jimi Hendrix. It just seems like he didn't really have the band yet. He didn't have the songs, but people just saw him and were like, all right, there's something special here. Some of these songs, some of his playing is just like unique and cool. And the idea that this record came out like almost like a year later meant that everything on this record he had either had in his pocket or like wrote that year, you know? And um, I think that makes it doubly impressive. You're not talking about some well-seasoned mm-hmm. musician who's, who's been around and who, you know, has this well of things like this is just some guy playing blues guitar at, at bars and stuff who had, are you experienced in his fucking pocket? <laughs> Like, that's cool. Yeah. And also makes me think how many fucking people are sitting on, you know, the best album ever who are never going to get a chance to play it. Um, but, you know, all that being said, once the album came out, none of that mattered because it blew people away the same as Illmatic did. And, it, and if you were into hard guitar rock at the time and any time after, this record completely changed the landscape of how a guitar is played and how it's used in songs. Uh, And nobody quite mixed, you know, a lot of people had attempted to do blues and rock before that was pretty well covered in the English scene, but Jimmy just happened to do it in a different way that gave it like a lot more life. 
uh, and a lot more enthusiasm, I feel like, besides for maybe like a Led Zeppelin or something. So, and then, and then, like you said, it just changed everything that came after it. So it's as important as anything. As a drummer, I want to get your take on this because, you know, a lot of uh, stuff that I've read and heard, people credit Mitch Mitchell's playing on this album as revolutionary. Why and how has it impacted you? Uh, I mean, it's impacted me a ton. Um, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit. I mean, the whole band doesn't get nearly enough credit for them shaping that movement. But it's it's the same thing I said about um, the drums being, uh, not just the drums, the music being livelier than the stuff that had come before it. And if he didn't have a drummer who could match that enthusiasm and match that speed, and complement a unique style with his style, it could have gotten lost. And he happened to meet somebody or be paired with somebody, I don't know exactly how it happened, um, who, who completely met that mark. And I think the unique part about his playing on that is it's almost like a uncontrolled control, you know, where the only other player I can think of from that time might have been Keith Moon, who was uh, playing really sophisticated rock beats, but like jumping out of his goddamn seat while he's doing it uh, and matching the enthusiasm of what Jimmy was doing. And then just creatively, there are some grooves uh, on that record that I hadn't heard. I mean, obviously I wasn't around in 1967, but um, if you listen to music at that time, I think, you're listening to some chops and grooves and stuff that just people weren't doing yet. I don't know exactly where he got his style of really overactive filling and kind of messing on offbeats and stuff like that, but it was certainly revolutionary and deserves, uh, deserves a lot of credit. And just one more note on here. I think it's very interesting that both Hey Joe nor Purple Haze uh, were you know top 10 hits in the U.S., and now you can't put on a classic rock station anywhere without hearing them every hour on the hour. So that's right. Incredible growth there. Other side of this matchup, it's Bowie. It's Ziggy. This record to me is very interesting because I feel like it kind of creates this alter ego rock. Like there's David Bowie and then there's Ziggy. A record like this, you know, kind of evolved rock into this rock pop thing of what 80s rock and roll became. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is a a big album to take on for a lot of reasons because, you know, it's like you got to choose which era of David Bowie was the most iconic. And I suppose this was the one, I mean, just simply put, he made a massively successful pop album about a bisexual alien rock star in the 80s. I mean, just, yeah. just, just simply put right there. <laughs> it deserves an insane amount of credit. Um, you know, I think this is one of those albums like people could make contentions about the songs if you want as like maybe not being one of the greatest albums of all time or something. I mean, I don't agree because I think the songs have lasted and they're beautiful pop songs, but it's it's like conceptually this album is bigger than the songs itself. You know, the idea that, you know, the the the, the guy Ziggy Stardust with only five years to survive on the earth won the hearts of teens scared parents seduced everyone in his path and eventually dies a victim of his own fame and all while wearing the clothes he's wearing 
like basically he invented conceptual glam rock on mm. this record um, and set a path for a lot of people moving forward in the 80s and 90s to, you know, not only don that style, but sort of open up femininity to men in a different way that allowed rock to open up in a different way. And then like the character itself as basically being an art piece uh, has left it to be one of the more iconic things that there was. And it's still lasting today. Not to bring it back to Jersey city, but a little way down the road, there's a big David Bowie mural right before you go through the Holland tunnel and they don't have just like David Bowie. They have Ziggy up there. And, and of course all these years later, that's a big testament to how overwhelmingly influential this record was. I mean, all you got to do is put a lightning bolt on your face and everybody knows what it is. A big lightning bolt. Yeah. I guess Harry Harry Potter took the mini one. <laughs> all right, final album here to go over. And we got the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson Thriller versus the five seed, the one that Benny fought so hard to get into this, Like a Virgin by Madonna. Benny, the floor is mm-hmm. yours. Well, I mean, this is like the ultimate 80s, 80s fight. Like I even imagined the Beat It video with the two of them with, tying up their wrists and, and fighting. And I think Madonna probably would have won. She's kind of <laughs> tough. Even though Michael's from Gary, Indiana, Madonna's from New York. She's very tough. I mean, Thriller, like, you know, I could get into, like, documentary style about the reasons that record is important. We all know why it's important. Uh, I mean, it spent 37 weeks in number one, changed the face of music for a decade. I mean, I think the biggest mark against this album and stuff now is the potential of what Michael Jackson did with his life afterwards and the things that happened afterwards. I mean, if that stuff didn't happen and Michael Jackson, even if he passed away, had led a a different life, uh, I think people would be looking at Michael Jackson records a lot differently than they are right now. Um, And, you know, it's the classic question that begs like, how much do you separate artist and music? How much do you allow? Uh, and if the things about him are true, then this record should never be on a list ever again. You know? Um, I but, mean, Hong, you can't, you, you can't even say that because of what it did at the time, I think, is so fundamentally important. And, and, and I get if you want to make the argument, yes, is Bill Cosby a terrible person? But you can't mean to tell me that uh, the Cosby Show wasn't a very important television show at the time and what it did for African-American culture going forward. Oh, of course. I mean, I think that just leads to a bigger question, which is something that needs to be discussed in the uh, time of cancel culture anyway. You know, it's like, how much do you let people get away with uh, if there's, you know, people being contrite? and moving on with their life afterwards in a good way, then do you allow them back in? Uh, What's a big enough smudge to take your legacy and throw it in the trash? Um, You know, I think there would be a lot of people who would listen to this who would say, hey, Bill Cosby, like, drugged and raped women. I don't care about his show. And the fact that he was capable of that makes everything he did move. I am not the one who's going to sit here and say who and what should be given that treatment because it's all personal and subjective. But as far as thriller goes, like you said, I mean, 
this album and this song basically took over culture when it happened, you know, like when Thriller was on TV, it was literally like the family stopping what they're doing and running around the TV to see Thriller. Like that's how iconic Michael Jackson was at that time. I remember literally uh, my family sitting around the TV. Everybody was sitting around the TV waiting for this new video, this black and white video that came out, you know, and it was connected with Pepsi and like all this stuff. And the guy was like as famous as the president when I was a kid, you know, and he still got to put him on the list. And I got to say, I, I like listen to this record still from time to time. And mm -hmm. it's just like, it's a goddamn perfect pop record. And again, we could, we could have the argument about the gray area, what you should and shouldn't do with these records over and over again. But you can't deny that fact, and you can't deny the impact it had. So between 1980 and 1982, record sales down by 50 million units a year, which is pretty crazy. Wow. Um, uh, and then, and on top of that, by 1982, black music only made up for 20% of the charts. And then along comes Thriller, and then next thing you know, this Thriller album comes out, and the interesting part while I was researching this was the battle to try to get Michael Jackson on, on MTV because initially mm. MTV said no because uh, they had the fight to get the Billie Jean video on there and because they didn't think that they had urban music on, on, on MTV at the time. But then after that comes out, this record vaults to number one and then kind of declines a little bit after that, but then when the Thriller video comes out, uh, directed by John Landis, by the way. Yeah. Six months before Christmas of that year, the Thriller video comes out, and that album is number one through the end of the year. So there is an argument to be had here that Michael Jackson brought back a music tradition that in pop music was going away for whatever reason at the time. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, it's a fucking perfect pop record, man. Like like song after song beat after beat sample after sample like it's an undeniably amazing record there's just nothing nothing particularly bad about it and and, and if you pull the social context away yeah all right the other side of this matchup like a virgin madonna this was madonna's second record and it kind of put to bed the notion that she was a one-hit wonder and Benny, a couple questions. You know how we talked about uh, the making of like the modern pop star and stuff like that. How much do you think Madonna contributed to what we expect a pop star to be in 2020? I mean, so much that it's insane. And that's the reason I fought so hard for Madonna to be on this list. Because she literally, to me, not only changed like fashion, right? Or, or uh, iconic style for a female pop artist. She also like, to me, reinvented almost how you would use sex, okay? So she represented a big shift to me, which was women not being a sex object, but owning herself, owning her music, and using her sexuality rather than it being exploited. And the fact that this was coming at the same time as you know, pop music was loaded with with songs like fucking Cherry Pie and like I Want Love and these like really like corny, over the top 
uh, sexually, not suggestive, semi-disgusting fucking topics about how women should be projected. And most often on TV, they were dancing on cars or uh, washing cars. What is this obsession with fucking women in cars? Uh, And, uh, you know, so I think right off the bat, not even talking about the music on the album, I think Madonna used her style, her, you know, and her iconic image to, to repurpose sex for women, which like seems really impactful to me. I couldn't talk about it too much because I'm obviously a man and I would love to hear a woman's perspective on this matter. But there seemed to me to be a major shift right there. And I think she was a uh, torch bearer for that type of thing. And again, as we've talked about many times on this, Madonna wrote and co-produced the bulk of the songs in this album, which for an 80s pop star was unique and especially uh, for such a young star who had no juice in the industry yet. She was able to get Niall Rogers on the record, who subsequently has produced like a hundred beautiful pop records after. Uh, had the members from Chic, his own band, playing on the record, which is one of the reasons the musicianship is so is so tight. And then you had some huge pop hits at the time, like A Virgin, Material Girl, songs that have not gone away, are still part of the uh, the common subculture. And um, I think Like A Virgin, for these reasons, deserves very much to be on this list. All right, Ben, it's time to make our picks. We'll run down the bracket, starting with Pet Sounds versus Twisted Dark Fantasy. Uh, Pet Sounds. I'm going with Twisted Dark <laughs> Fantasy because ah! little known fact here, little known fact, well, well, not because of this reason. I just wanted to share this. Elton John himself, on the record, plays piano on one, one of the tracks. But no, overall, I think the change the game for how we market albums going forward, uh, probably in perpetuity, Kanye, you got my vote. Yeah. Love it. All right, the next one we got here, we're going London Calling versus Illmatic. Benny, who you like? Listen, it's going to be an unpopular opinion, okay? But I got to be honest with myself. This is one of those times where, let's take, for instance, members of my band, right? When you share a band with somebody and you're riding around in a van, you really get to know what other musicians' musical tastes are, you know? Because the guard is down, Hmm. After a couple weeks, you're done trying to impress people with your music taste. And now you're just trying to stay awake when you're fucking driving for six hours and you're actually listening to things you really want to listen to. And I got to be honest, man. I, you could ask, you could poll, right? Any member of a band I've ever been in and they could say, what artist have you heard Benny play more in the van, Nas or The Clash? And they would all say Nas really quickly. And it would be a pretty obvious choice for them. So because of that, I'm going to have to go out for my seven seed. I'm going to pick Elmatic. The people that listen to this pod and follow Benny are going to think that I hate rock and roll, which is so fundamentally false. But I'm going to have to go with Nas and Elmatic too. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's New York. It's, it's the area that, that we're from. It's the one that hits hardest to home. Which really, wow. I, I, th- I think we just made this super regional by just London versus New York. But fuck it, who cares? It's I'm our bracket. I'm losing all my fans here. I'm losing all my fans. Denigrating Bruce Springsteen and the Clash in this poll. You're not Jack, doing me any favors here, Denny. Jack Curry is never coming on the pot again. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. 
our 3-6 matchup. Are you experienced by Jimi Hendrix versus Rise and Fall of Ziggy? Who you got? This is another, This is a tough one for me because on a personal level, I really enjoy the Jimi Hendrix record more. I'd like to listen to it more. But I do think Ziggy Stardust holds a weight and carries a timelessness that, uh, that Jimmy may not. And I think this record is going to age in a different way where, where Jimi Hendrix will be uh, famously listed in a group of artists and David Bowie will be listed in, on his own. And, uh, and that's why I'm going to go Ziggy. I'm going just album for album, the music here. And I know it's easier to go Jimmy versus Ziggy here, but I'm going to have to go with all you experienced here. All right, and then finally here, Thriller versus Like a Virgin, uh, an and 80s Clash behemoth, almost Battle of the Network stars, if you will. Benny, who you got? Like a Virgin. I'm riding it. I fought you for weeks <laughs> getting it on the list. I'm not about to vote against it now. Uh, I got I got to go, Michael. I mean, is, is, is there a more iconic... I mean, the moonwalk came out of this, you know, that iconic album cover, all of it, King of Pop, fundamentally michael jackson i hope he has a long run in this tournament you know one of the things i always remember from that is the terrifying terrifying time i had as a child watching that video and they're inside of that house oh, yeah. and all of a sudden the hands start coming <laughs> through the walls i feel like i've still never really gotten over that like if i have my back against the wall i think like a zombie hand's about to get me always <laughs> All right, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at thetuneuppodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, Instagram us. You can vote for this very competition on at thetuneuphq on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Benny on Twitter at BennyHorowitz1. Number one in your minds, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. You can follow me at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Yeah, everyone take care of each other out there. Stay positive, and everybody love everybody. Yeah, it's important to stay positive. Uh, and, hey, vote. We got plenty of good stuff coming your way. We'll be back again with you guys on Friday for our final region. And until then, this has been The Tune-Up.